1: Call to confession is from Colossians 2, verse 6. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. To receive Christ is to believe in him, to accept him as the atoning sacrifice for sin, as Lord of heaven and earth and of your life. If we have received him, then our lives are made new, and that new life should display our intimate association with Jesus through a walk of faith in him. Walking implies action. Our religion, our new life in Christ, is not to be confined to our closet. We must carry out what we believe into all areas of our life. When we walk in Christ, then we act as Christ would act. He, being in us our hope, our love, our joy, means we become reflective of his image. Others must see Christ in us. You are your father's son, or you are your mother's daughter, are common statements when a person acts or speaks just like his or her parent. The same should be said of us regarding who we profess as Lord. You are your master's servant because you live like Jesus Christ. As we have received him, so we should walk in him. Walking also signifies progress. We walk in him. We don't sit or slumber in him. We must be advancing and therefore proceeding from grace to grace, from glory to glory, We run forward until we reach the uttermost degree of knowledge that a man can attain concerning our Savior. Walking implies persistence. There must be a perpetual abiding in Christ. But how often, though, do we draw near to him in the morning or have a bit of devotion in the evening, but give our hearts to the world or to ourselves throughout the day? Such a routine is a poor way to live. We should always be with him, treading in his steps and doing his will. To walk in him is to make Jesus our habit. We must keep to him, live and move and have our being in him. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Let us persevere in the same way in which we began with Christ. Just as at the beginning Christ Jesus was the trust of our faith, the principle of our actions, and the joy of our spirit. So let him be the same now until our life's end. Let Jesus be the same to us when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death as when we enter into the joy and rest which remain for the people of God. God's word reminds us of our need to confess our sins. Your you're willing neighbor, able, please kneel with me as we confess our sins.
2: gather on this in this Thanksgiving season preparing for this time of Thanksgiving. Let us join our hearts together in gratitude for God's unending grace and mercy. Heavenly Father we are blessed beyond belief when we take account of what you have done of who you are and who we are and what we have done. Our hearts cannot but help to be grateful. And so as we come again to your word to hear of your great love to review again your grace and mercy to think that you the creator, sustainer, provider of all things would declare Yourself to us clearly so that we might know You and know how to follow after You. Thank You that Your Spirit is with us to help us know these things. We thank You that You give us eyes to see, ears to hear and the courage and faith to believe. And so we ask for your ever faithfulness in these matters as we hear your word today. In Christ's name, amen. Although he was not the feature speaker at the event, Abraham had been asked to set apart these grounds to their sacred use by a few appropriate words. He scrawled out, line after line, searching for the appropriate words to say at such a solemn occasion. As he sat through the two-hour speech of the silver-tongued orator before him, Abraham became uncertain if his woeful speech would have any benefit. Finally, he stood at the podium to address the 15,000 people who had gathered for this grave event and presented a two-minute speech. He reminded the audience of their history. He reviewed the current situation and sought to revive a spirit of commitment and determination. While there had been a thunderous applause for the previous orator, the crowd was eerily silent and quiet after Abraham finished speaking. However, the silence was not due to disrespect, nor a failure to meet expectations, nor a lack of ability in public speaking. No, it's, the audience was astounded by the poignant message that had been delivered in such a succinct manner. In spite of his self-proclaimed doubt about the effectiveness of his speech, President Abraham Lincoln had just delivered one of the most memorable speeches of United States history, if not world history. The Gettysburg Address had been delivered on November 19th, 1863. So it is this weekend, it is this time of the year, that President Lincoln was standing before the nation and calling them to think about where they were at and what lay ahead of them. And in our text today, in Joshua 24, Joshua found himself in a very similar situation. There was a people that had arrived in a new land. There was instruction to give and he was searching for what were the right words to say. And we might argue then that Abraham Lincoln Lincoln actually mimicked Joshua's uh, speech because that's what Joshua did. He reviewed their history. He talked about the current situation and put out a call to action to try to get a renewed commitment and determination for what would make them great. There's a riddle that is often heard or or quoted that in a bacon and egg breakfast, what's the difference between the chicken and the pig? You probably know that. The chicken participates, or is involved, and the pig is committed. (laughs) And so, I want us to think about today, as we review Joshua's challenge to the Israelites, he was trying to determine if he had a bunch of chickens or a bunch of pigs. And I think we, that's a great question for us to ask, as we consider where we are at today in our lives, as a church, as a church as a whole, and the changes that are taking place in culture, things are different. And so it is important for us to understand our participation in the breakfast. Are we going to just be involved, or are we going to be committed? So Joshua, as our Old Testament reading indicated, called a meeting. It's interesting if if, if if you like irony and play on words, where he says he called he called the leaders to he called the leaders of Israel for their heads. Right? If we stop there, we're in trouble. He's going to kill all these leaders, but that's not what he was doing. Right? He called all the people, all the leaders. He made everybody that needed to hear this message was to be there and to review what was going to take place. And so as the Israelites gathered together, he begins first with a history lesson, History 101. And we read through that. We're not going to read through it again. We're not going to discuss it in detail. Our primary focus is going to be uh, verses 14 and following. But as he reviewed this history lesson, he could probably summarize it up like this. Man makes messes. God cleans up messes. Right as, as Joshua reviewed the history of Israel, what happened? Abraham did this, Jacob did this, the Israelites did this, did this, did this. And every single time, what was the result of their actions? They failed. And then, who came in on the white stallion with the cape and the the hero of the day? As you just review it, it's God took Abraham and did this. He led him through this. He multiplied his descendants. He provided this. He delivered the Israelites. He defeated the Amorites again and again. He he washed away the Egyptians. He plagued the Egyptians again and again again. As the Israelites, or man, was trying to figure things out and work it out, it was God who comes in and does the saving. And that's important for us to understand about how life, in general, works. Man and God both work or live according to their nature. And man's nature is to mess up and not believe God, right? That's what Paul wrote to the Romans, right? God clearly declares himself, and what does man do with that? He misinterprets it, applies misapplies it, and lives out in, in resistance and disobedience to God. That's man's nature. That's who we are. We're the messer-uppers. We're the get-it-wrongers. There is none good. There is none righteous. No, not one. There is none that seek after God. There is no spark of goodness down in our deep belly or soul that we just have to flame and bring alive. We are dead in our trespasses and sin. That is our nature. And we can only act in accordance with our nature. So try as we may. Try as Abraham did, try as Jacob did, try as Moses did, try as Joshua did. On their own, they can only mess it up. There's good news though. God has a nature too. <laughs> His is justice and righteousness. His is goodness and mercy. His is that of being the sovereign God. Isaiah 46 reminds us that God sits in the heavens and he sees what's going on and doesn't just react to it but that he declares the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done saying my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure." That is who God is. He is the sovereign one. He is going to do what is right. He is going to execute judges. He is going to, and here's where the really good news is, change the nature of people. That's our only hope. That's our only help. He is able to come in and change a person's nature. From only being a messer-upper to one who represents and knows who God is. So it's important for the Israelites to see the big picture. To recognize the need that they have been rescued by God. And everything that has happened as they've reviewed their history, nothing has happened By their own hand. Verse 13 makes that very, very clear. What's he say there in verse 13? Actually, the end of 12. He said, i killed the two kings of the Amorites, but not with your sword or with your bow. Verse 13. I have given you the land for which you did not labor, cities which you did not build. You dwell in them. You eat the vineyards and olive groves which you... Did not plant. But God, we did fight the Amorites. God, we did take the land. God, we did build the cities. God, we did plant the vineyards. But why? Why did the enemy fall? Why did the houses stand? Why did the vineyards produce fruit? He reminds them in in a future story, in Haggai, that all that happens again because of his work, right? When the Israelites come back from captivity and they focus on building their own homes instead of what he had called them to do, his temple. He says, look, you work hard and it's like spinning your wheels in the sand. Well, they wouldn't use wheels at that point because they didn't have motors, but you understand what I'm saying, right? They plant much, and they harvest little. They put money in their pockets, and it's like it has a hole in it. And Joshua here, at the beginning of that whole story, hundreds, centuries before, had warned the Israelites. This is how the story is going to go. And we can know it because this is what has already happened. God is sovereign he works things out to his pleasure. Man is not and will fail in his own efforts. That is where we stand today, Israelites. We may have seen some success. We may have seen some, um, some uh, um, achievement. But we must understand it is not because of what we have done. But it is because of what God So in in understanding this picture, this big picture allows um, Joshua then to put out his call to action in verses 14 and 15. What is that call to action? He says, now therefore, fear the Lord, serve him in sincerity and in truth, and put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the river and in Egypt serve the Lord. And if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So there's the call to action of all the things that Joshua could ask the Israelites to do. He could ask them to make sure you invest your money well. Make sure you build good houses. Make sure you live in community. Make sure you love one another. Make sure you take care of your neighbor. Make sure you love your wife. Make sure you love your husband. Make sure you are a good business person. He could ask them. He could call them to all kinds of things. What did Abraham Lincoln call the nation to do in his little two-minute speech? To continue the work that had been won by those who gave their, cell, their lives at that battle at Gettysburg. Bring about the, to the reality of what they were fighting for one nation under God, a union. Right? He called them to be united. What's Joshua? He's got the whole nation gathered here. Not just 15,000 people, but probably upwards to 6 million people gathered to hear this. And what's his call to action? Fear the Lord. That's why it was important to have that quick history lesson. If this is who God is and this is who man is, then this is what we must do. We must fear the Lord. And he calls them and explains it in three ways in which they were to fear the Lord. Now oftentimes that word fear is uh, people are afraid to use it because they think of fear as being afraid. But it's also, remember, I'm sure from your past studies in Sunday school, it can also mean respect or reverence. I think we need to understand it's all of those. We need to be, when we understand who God is, right, what is Isaiah? When he sees God, He falls down as if dead. What did God remind Moses when he asked him on the mount? That he wanted to see him. Moses, I can't show you because if if you see me, what's going to happen to you? You will die. There is a sense, a, a genuine sense, and a complete sense that we need to be afraid of God. The writers to the Hebrews reminds us again of that. This isn't just some Old Testament mindset. But we come to a mountain. Our God is a consuming fire. So that should lead to a reverence and respect for him. He, according to Joshua, needs to be the number one priority. the The top idea that's forefront in our minds as we plan our days, as we plan our to-do list, as we plan our our career objectives, as we plan who we're going to marry, as we plan what we're going to do for career and college, whatever we're planning to do, it should all be under this idea of does it show me, does it show a fear of the Lord. He says this is how you're going to do it. You're going to serve with sincerity and truth. Now this is hard for us, this would have been very natural for the Israelites. But he uses a slave motif. To call, call them to action. Right? He says serve. We like the word serve. But really it is. It's talking about slavery. He says serve. The Lord with sincerity and truth. For you have. And remember as he recalled their history. What did, what did the Israelites been in? They had been in slavery time and again. There had been harsh Treatment. They had been brought out of that life. But as they lived in that life, what did they do? They made the bricks every day. They served the Pharaoh. They tried to live and do what they were supposed to be doing. And they had been under a harsh taskmaster during that time. But the slave is redeemed. They've been brought out of Egypt. They have been set free. Well, in the slave motif, typically what happens... As the slave is purchased from one master by another master to serve the new master. Redemption does not set them free to do whatever they want to, but to now have a different master to serve. And that's what Joshua is reminding the Israelites. They had been in Egypt under harsh task situations. They had lived freely in the wilderness under harsh conditions. I love that. Back in the in the in the uh, uh, summary of the history, right? This this this, and you spent time in the wilderness. This, this this. I mean, forty years of their life of rotten living, of complaining every day of eating manna and, and quail, and it gets one little line in the summary. In fact, Balaam gets more playtime than the whole time in the wilderness. Balaam, whoever even remembers him. But apparently for the Israelites to understand what was going on, Balaam was more important to remember than the 40 years in the wilderness. I think the 40 years in the wilderness had been embedded in their minds. They were never going to forget that. They had to be uh, reminded about the talking donkey. So Joshua reminds Israel of where they had been as slaves in Egypt, where they had been uh, a... uh, they were never a good fit, even as they lived in the, in the wilderness. They were always a stranger. They were always a, a misfit. They were always, it was always unfavorable. It seemed like the conditions never worked out for them. And it was usually pretty harsh. Now, the contrast that Joshua wants to understand is they're in the new land. They have a new place to be. It's a new life. There's a new king. There's new opportunities. But it's going to have to function in the same way through service. It's no longer the evil master. It's the kind master. It's no longer the task master. But it's the benefactor. The condition, the situation has changed. But the relationship has not the Israelites are still servants they are still slaves and they still have a master but instead of being a harsh taskmaster it's a gracious, generous, sovereign God who can do anything anything and he's shown it time and again when they continually disobeyed him time and again he delivered them time and again God provided for them time and again he rescued them And at every time, there was complaining. There was disobedience. There was disregard for who God was. So as Joshua and the Israelites come in, he wants them to know what is going to make this work. What's it going to make to work this time? You must serve God with sincerity and truth. And to show that, he calls them to do something says so if the first step you need to do when you, in order to serve God with sincerity and truth is to put away your, the old gods that you've been including as part of your life. Put away those old beliefs, those old habits, that old lifestyle that you've adapted and adopted throughout your, your life. And it goes all the way back to Abraham. That's why God called him out, because he was was serving false gods. He calls them out to go serve God. That's why he takes them out of Egypt. False gods are in. That's why he delivers them from the wilderness and from the Amorites. False gods had entered into their life. And so they were to put away the false gods and to serve God alone. Right? Solo deo gloria. God alone. And we, and we see that this is the primary. As you just kind of go, uh, glance down through the, the remaining verses. This idea of which God you're serving is the key theme. Time again he talks about the fathers serving the gods on the other side of the river. He talked about them serving the god of the Amorites. He calls them to serve the Lord. This decision of who the Israelites are going to serve is the key idea, the key element for the Israelites to get it right. He lays it out clearly. He lays it out blatantly and says, you must put away the old gods and you must serve God only. And why, based on, I guess, just the argument he's laid out so far, because really he's the only God, Time and again, the false gods have been proven to be false. They really don't exist. Right? So we make up a tree instead and worship it. Or we we choose a planet. Right? So we take something that's physical and tangible, and the Israelites would worship that. But God is the only God. He is the master, whether it's acknowledged or not. And he is working out his plan. He's already laid out that groundwork. He is the sovereign God. You're doing all you want to do over here. It's God that makes it happen. So why not serve him? Is the rhetorical question. If he's the one making it work out anyway, why go through all the struggle and trouble to resist him when he's going to get his way anyway? We might the slave motif is a very hard subject for us to understand because of our, of our history and it's, it's been, we're just not familiar with it really well. But maybe if we think of it this way, if a professional sports person or someone that works is, goes from one, let's choose football, okay? So they, they go from the Detroit Lions, which they're doing okay, but Right? So they get traded from the Detroit Lions. I don't know who's our leading contender this year Seahawks, Patriots, Cal- anybody, right? But the, but the Lions, <laughs> right? Let's say someone gets traded. Let's go even vert. Okay, the Lions, we won't pick up the Lions. On, someone's on the Cleveland Browns, and they get traded to the Dallas Cowboys. So their first day of practice, they show up with the Dallas Cowboys still wearing their Browns uniform with their Cleveland Browns playbook. And when the coach tells them something, they say, yeah, but let me call the coach back at the Browns first and make sure it's okay. That's what Joshua says the Israelites are doing. Is, is they're, they're always going back to the bad situation as their default thinking and way of living. Let's say you, I don't don't necessarily encourage this, but you show up at a McDonald's and the person there is in a Burger King uniform offering you a walker. Like, it doesn't make sense. Or you show up at, let's let's raise up, we show up at Outback and the guy from Olive Garden is showing up offering you all you can eat salad. It's not quite. It doesn't, it doesn't match up. And that's what the Israelites were doing. Is they, were, they were going from one situation to another, but then going back to what seemed natural, what felt good, what felt right. And he said, you can't do that. That is an old system, that's an old master. You must put away the old gods and serve God alone. So he calls them to make a decision because in either scenario, a God will be served. It's either going to be the true God who does everything he wants and makes everything work out anyway or a false, false God that doesn't exist but I feel good about it. Some god will be served. And he, he gives them the tertium quid, right? Which god is going to be served? The tertium quid, the third option, right? We, we always set up false dilemmas. It's either this or this. But typically, if we look really hard, there is a third option. There's something else we could do besides being, be, uh, being between a rock and a hard place or a catch-22. We could do this, Joshua says. You could serve, you could serve the gods that your ancestors served. Beyond the river, you can go back and say, Yes, our traditions are, we are Abraham's children, so we are going to be like Abraham. And call back to that. That's, that's, that's an option. Or you can go along with current culture. You can worship the gods that the Amorites have, are serving. You can continue to. Follow what's going on around you. Well, the Amorites were pretty impressive. Remember who the Amorites are. That was Sihon and Og. They had been defeated by all but remember Og, King Og of the Amorites? He's the one that had a bed 13 and a half feet long. He was a sizable guy. They were fierce warriors. They looked sharp out in their... In fact... They were probably the ones that the Israelites saw in the promised land before they spent 40 years in the wilderness. Remember, the, the spies came back and said, Whoa, there's giants in there. There's just nothing. They were an oppressive people. They were big. They were successful. They were. Uh, they had, Hammurabi was an Amorite. What's he noted for? He established a code of law. They were law abiding citizens, they had a law code. That became a, a foundational for many cultures after that. But they also were based upon a thought of witchcraft and sorcery. Marduk. They had a whole complex system of worshipping false gods. So he said, while well, they have a lot of great things. Just make sure you're looking at what you're, what you're doing. So you can serve your, your, your uh, traditions. You can connect with the current culture or you worship the true God, the creator, the deliverer, the provider, the sustainer, the savior. Those are your options. Your traditions, break away from traditions, go with current culture or serve the one true God. So in, in verses 16 through 27, he calls them to that commitment. Commitment. He works through that process then of how to make that decision. And of course, as any good mob does, when they're put in the spot and they're got revved up by the speaker, what do they do? They're like, yeah, yeah, we're all in. woohoo!" Give, yeah. We're, 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 we're in Joshua. Right? That's, they have an immediate response. What I like to call the moral majority. That sounds good, let's do it. At the moment, I'm all in. We want to look good, we want to appear to be doing what's right. If you say that's right, count us in. They know their history stories, they know the right answers, right? Every, Every answer is Jesus, God, and Holy Spirit, right? To the, whatever, right? You try to ask some historical, philosophical question, Jesus, right? Well, how can you not, that's always the right answer, right? But we're looking for a little more substance than that. Right? There's quick consent. There's a mob mentality. So, so Joshua does what every good preacher does when he wants a commitment. He tells them they're crazy. No, right then we start going around with our prayer cards and have everybody sign them, right? Sign up now! I've got the crowd where I want them. Get them to sign up, say their prayer, raise their hand, speak something, and no, you're good to go. Not Joshua. What's he say? But Joshua said to the people, you cannot serve the Lord. See, he knew their hearts. He knew what their traditions were. He knew what their habits were. They still had the old gods in their tents. They still held on to the old traditions of Abraham and the gods that... We're on the other side of the river. You cannot serve the Lord for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions nor your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after he has done you good. Josh was pretty thankful for the quick commitment, but he wants to make sure they understand what they're committing to. If you commit to this, if you covenant to follow God, as long as you follow him, you're in, you're in good hands, Allstate. But if you break covenant, here is the risk. Curse. Judgment. God's wrath. Are you ready to commit? You never had to worry about that over here in the false gods, right? What were they going to do to you? <laughs> right? You messed up, God comes in and saves you. That was kind of the... The, the false gods never did anything because they can't. you got to understand what happens when you're, when you're dealing with a real, true, live God. He is God. That's what makes him God. He will be served. It's his way or no way. And they needed to understand. So he gives them a caution... He calls out their bluff. He questions their sincerity and reminds them of God's modus operandi, right? How does God operate? If you obey me, I will bless you. If you disobey me, you will be cursed. That's always. That's always an either or. There's never a tertium quid with God's modus operandi. Obedience brings blessing. Disobedience brings curse. So then the people once again say, no, 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 it's good. So he clarifies what it means, right? The the people insist and recommit. Joshua reminds them of what that's going to be. You've got to put away your old gods. You've got to serve only God. And then they put it in writing. They come up with a covenant. In general, they have their ideas of, of, that are abstract, right? They talk about a covenant. They talk, he talks about a covenant, a statute, and an ordinance. So they talk through what's this going to look like. And then they put it in writing. They make it tangible. They develop symbols to remind the people of what they've committed to. Because we know the Israelites, surprise, surprise, sometimes forget what they've committed to. Sometimes forget what God has done. And so they, he puts it down in symbols that are tangible. He has the he writes it in the word of the law. They get a big rock and set it down. Boom! Right? They've done rocks before, so the people this wasn't odd for the people. They they gathered the rocks as they came through the Jordan and set them up as reminders. They made it close to an oak tree, so they made reference to an oak tree, and it was by the tabernacle. So they had four symbols, four tangible reminders. So, in the event that they forget what they had committed to on that day there was something tangible for them to go back to and once he gets this commitment and gets this covenant he then initiates and implements the action plan in verse 28 what do they do what's the big action plan Joshua let the people depart each to his inheritance all right We've worked through all this. Now go live it. That's the action plan. you committed to this. Go live it. You've said you're going to do this. Go do it. It's not complicated. It's not complex. They didn't, put together, they didn't spend months and years putting together a strategic vision and mission and vision statement. Do it. Right? The, the old Nike Just do it. That's the action plan. Well, we know the end of the story. (laughs) How did the Israelites do? Israel failed miserably, didn't they? So much that they had to be sent into captivity centuries later. But how did God do in relationship to what Joshua said would happen? He kept every single word and did everything that that Joshua said he would do. Everything. When they obeyed, he blessed. When they disobeyed, he cursed. And he still provided for them, even in his wrath. Even in their disobedience, he still delivered them. He still took care of them. As he had before, as he does before ongoing. God doesn't change. God does not, he he does not change with the winds or the times. And so we come to our day and we have to ask ourselves where do we stand? How How does this apply to us? Are we a chicken like the Israelites or a pig? careful of a pig like God. Are we just participating in this whole process or are we fully committed? And how committed was God? He keeps his plan and because man is a messer-upper, he changes our nature by giving himself to make it right. Because man can't live up to the standard, he gave his only begotten son. For that price of redemption. For that reconciliation that needed to take place. So we must understand. Do we believe this? That we are messer-uppers. And we cannot do this in of ourselves. Work as hard as we want to. Do whatever we want to do. We're not going to get it right. That's our nature. That's who we are. But do we know who God is? Do we really believe that God is going to act in accordance with his nature? That he's loving, gracious, merciful, bountiful. He keeps his word no matter what. And so, maybe in our personal life, and certainly, and I think this is important for where we are in our culture today, we are in a new world. Those that are against God have a new courage. They were forced to abide according to Christian principles when there was somewhat of a Christian culture. That day is gone. They have a new courage and are willing to step out and begin to do those things which they were were afraid to do in years past. And so we need, I I call us to say, where are we as we enter this new land, as we have new opportunities, as we continue to serve the new king? Are we stuck in our tradition? Are we tempted by the current culture around us? Or are we committed to serving the one true God? Do we believe? Is that where our faith is? In Christ alone? Are we busy each day? Right? Called daily. To put off the old man. And put on the new man. Are we putting out the old gods. That we have so willingly served. Day in and day out. The old habits. The old thinking patterns. The way that culture has brought us along. We must make that choice. We must renew and establish that covenant once again. That God is the true God. He is the only God and He is our Master. But He's also our Heavenly Father. And so it's by His Word He gives us clear teaching in those things. It's this, he has given us the symbols by which we. Re, we it's beautiful here to re, renew that every week. As we go through those symbols, we come and worship. We have the reading of God's word. We partake in baptism. We participate in the Lord's Supper every week. What a blessed gift we have. Are we using it as the means of grace, as the, the tangible covenant symbol? That shows the power of the one true God. That proclaims the gospel that Jesus Christ is the only Savior of men. What will be your story? We know what happened to Israel. They quickly committed. They claimed to fear the Lord. And yet they did not pass that on to subsequent generations. And in the end, they failed. They did not remember the covenant that they had made. They forgot to look at the rock. They stopped looking at the rock. They forgot the oak tree. They no longer listened to the word of God. And they no longer gathered in his tabernacle to worship him. So we must ask ourselves this question. Are we the chicken or the pig? What's our commitment? In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you again for your word. But it's not a word that's harsh, it's not a word that's unattainable. It is a word that seems hard, it is a word that seems unbelievable sometimes. Yet, it is true. It is, it is like having the master plan. It is like knowing, reading the last chapter. It is, it is, it is knowing the answer before we even receive the question. And so Lord, again, please, by your spirit, Make our hearts receptive to this. Continue to be faithful in your work to change our nature. We need, we need that. We are so lost. We are so self-deceived. We, please forgive us for our complacency. Forgive us for our unbelief. Renew a steadfast spirit in us. And may we have the courage to fight that battle and recommit that belief every day because Christ is our Savior. And we close by praying in the way that the Lord.
3: Matthew twenty-six reads And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take ye, this is my body. Then he took the cup and gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of it. I'm saying, all of you. For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on on until the day when I drink it it new with you in my father's kingdom. Jesus, whether he was feeding 5000 in the wilderness or at a wedding or sharing a Passover meal with his disciples, Jesus meals were always occasions for thanksgiving. It was understood by the early church fathers that the Lord's Supper defines the church and the word Eucharist means thanksgiving. This shared meal makes us the body of Christ. We are what we eat, and we who eat this one loaf are being constituted into one body. Week after week, we enact the reality that we are a people organized for thankfulness. Our life together is determined by the common gifts that we have received from our Father and the gifts that we share with one another. We do this week after the week because we are not where we should be or where we want to be. The contrast between the discontent world And a grateful church is not very clear or distinct, as much as we would like it to be. We are not the thankful people that we will become. And this meal is a weekly reminder both of the destination and the distance we have to travel before reaching it. But the Lord does not give us this meal every week just to rub our faces in it. This meal and this table is not merely a reminder of what we should be and what we aren't. But it's a weekly pledge of what God is determined to make us to be. This meal is a weekly reminder that God gave His body and blood of His Son and a weekly reiteration of His promise to fulfill all that He intended for us. At this meal, He shows us that He is determined to bring us to Christ's kingdom, the kingdom of joy and of thanks, a light without shadow and a kingdom of contentment where all will be well. Welcome to Christ's table. Of thanksgiving.
0: Thank you for listening to this audio recording from Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in this recording, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact us through our website, ChristKirkMI.com That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I dot com. Again, thank you and blessings.